0: And it's my pleasure now to introduce Christy Starkweather, who's going to, had a, quite an experience this past week, is going to tell us about it, and is actually going to preach at the same time. So she calls it a sermon, but it's a sermon. It's good. It's high quality. I've read it in advance, and this is going to be really good. And then I'm going to lead a little uh, quiet reflection afterwards. So uh, welcome Christy as she comes up here and gets her stuff all figured out. See, it's it's a very friendly crowd. Good? You're good.
1: Okay, good. Yeah, I'm not a professional speaker, so I'm going to read this, and I apologize in advance for awkwardness. I do awkward really well, and the good part is I know there are people who can relate to that, so. All right. So I know that immigration and the separation of families has been on the top of the news feed lately, and I want to share some of my stories with you. I'm particularly interested in these stories because I spent time in Guatemala in my early 20s working with a medical missionary, and I've maintained relationships with people from this experience throughout the years. Additionally, I like to talk to people in Spanish and ask them questions about their experiences. Over the years, I've heard a number of stories, and I'm gonna tell you some of them. I want to emphasize that all the little vignettes are real experiences. Things that were told to me firsthand by the people who experienced them. But first, I want to tell you about 11-year-olds. I have one. He pretends that he doesn't know me in the school hall, but he curls up next to me on the couch at night when no one else is looking. I also want to tell you a little bit about nine-year-olds. I've got one of those, too. They think they've got life down, but when things are hard, they crumble. They are still clearly children. And six-year-olds, the little ones who jump around a lot, but then they crumple into sobbing messes when they turn the corner at the grocery store and they realize they can't find you and you're just two aisles away. I don't have one of those, but my friend Yenny does. An 11-year-old boy, a nine-year-old girl, and a six-year-old boy. This past week, they saw their mother for the first time in almost two months. An 11-year-old boy just entering adolescence who is trying to keep it together for the sake of his younger siblings, but probably really just wants to curl up next to his mom and be parented and pretend this never happened. A nine-year-old girl who can't understand how big this country is, and cries on the phone to her mother, asking, why aren't you coming to pick me up? Why aren't you here yet? When Yenny is driving from Arizona to New York. A six-year-old boy without his mom or any other adult that he knows and trusts separated for almost two months. So Yenny ended up sitting on my couch last week. I was just one brief overnight stop in a long chain of cross-country driving, from a detention center in Arizona to Colorado through Nebraska, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and finally ending in New York. But it's not the three days of nonstop driving or the hours of lost sleep that matter the most, nor the new clothes and the suitcases. New suitcases and tags cut off of things scattered on my living room floor for repacking into these new suitcases purchased at the Ann Arbor Saline Target just hours before by a set of kind volunteers to supplement her one small backpack with the one change of clothes for every family member. All the worldly possessions they brought on this journey from a rural Guatemalan village so small you can't even find it on Google Google Maps when we look. After the volunteers had left, Yeni shared her experiences with me. She didn't tell me about her village, but that's okay, because I've seen rural Guatemalan villages before, the kinds of places that look like living National Geographic photos. Hers is so small, it doesn't appear on the Google Maps. She shows me the next largest town. But there's nothing romantic about living in hard, grinding poverty, where infant mortality can reach upwards of 40%. Medical care is virtually non-existent, and clean water and a diet with sufficient protein are daily challenges. Yeni is a single mother of three children who supports herself cleaning houses. I didn't ask her why she left, but I can guess. Poverty and violence often go hand-in-hand. Sometimes people come because they are looking for a better life for their children, or they hope to work and send money back to support their family back home. But sometimes it's direct violence, especially in certain areas. For example, I chatted with a Honduran construction worker who left because he had to cross gang territory every day to go to school. And one day, the gang approached him, requesting that he join. Not really a request, but a join or will kill you and possibly your family type of decision. He made the journey north and he crossed as an unaccompanied minor at about 15 years old. Just take a minute and think about a 15-year-old or a teenager, Honduras to LA, pretty much by yourself. Yeni didn't tell me about how she financed her journey, but that's okay. I've heard those stories, too. The one where the poorest and least educated family in the village had nothing to pay for their older son's passage. The dad has a second-grade education. And the missionary Terry walked up the. She walked up the um, up the hill to visit this family three times, begging the dad, trying to explain, "Please keep your oldest son in school. Please keep him in school. Please let him finish fifth grade." They mortgaged their ancestral farmland using two loans at fifteen percent and nineteen percent interest. The smugglers, or the money lenders who are connected with smugglers, made an agreement with them that they have to pay back all of the 15% loan first, while the 19% is accruing interest before they can start paying the 19% interest loan. She didn't tell me about her journey through Guatemala, Yeni did not tell me about her journey through Guatemala and Mexico to the border near Arizona, but that's okay, I've heard those stories too. The one where the girls selling fruit on the streets of New York City told me how she made it across the burning desert, but her group had a woman with a mom who was carrying a young baby, and the young baby died in the desert. The story where your two favorite, naughty, jokey, 17-year-old boys that you taught in the introductory English class and the computer skills class in the village were each handed two gallons of water by a smuggler on the edge of the Sonoran Desert in 100-degree heat, shown a landmark in the distance, and told... If you walk straight across the desert in 2 days you'll get to the other side and there will be a sm- there will be someone there waiting in a car to pick you up 17-year-old boys The one where the woman who cleans houses was given methamphetamines by the smuggler and told to keep up because if you fall in the desert no one will carry you no one will come back for you And be careful where you step, because there are scorpions and rattlesnakes out there. What Yeni did decide to tell me, in her slow, like, rural village Spanish accent at first, and then later in the faster clip of somebody who has lived through trauma and is still living through it in that minute, is this. She was taken by Customs and Border Patrol her three children were with her. They were soon separated. She didn't know where they were taken. She was put into the congelera, the icebox, which is one of the types of U.S. government detention facilities. In the icebox, it is not quite cold enough to give you frostbite, but it's cold enough to make you extremely uncomfortable. Of course... You don't have extra blankets or jackets because that would ruin the purpose of the icebox. She was in there for 17 days. Think about that for a minute. 17 days of being as, as cold as you can possibly be without quite getting frostbite. She says the food was really bad either spoiled or kind of on the verge of spoiling. But it didn't matter to her because she couldn't eat. She was depressed and despondent. She spent 17 days crying for her children, praying to God and fasting. And around her, she was hearing other women cry for their children too. Then she was transferred to a regular detention center for 29 more days, 29 days of waiting, with no certainty of when or if she will see her children again. She shows me her fingers with the skin peeling off of the tips, telling me they hurt all the time, like a burning kind of tingling pain and the skin's peeling off. And she says, I don't know if it was because I was sitting on the ground and like pushing up off of cement, or because there were cleaning chemicals that burned my skin. I don't know. It just hurts. Days of just waiting without information one day after another. By the time I had talked to her, she had put in about one phone call or two to her children in two months. She was released on bond, raised by a woman in New York City who heard Yenny's lawyer speak on New York public radio. Called up the lawyer and this woman asked how she could be part of the reunification effort. The answer was help with fundraising to help post bond. After the bond was posted and Yenny was released, she was told she could take a bus from Arizona to New York by herself to recover her children but she doesn't speak any English. And she has great fear that Immigration and Customs Enforcement will board the bus, take her into custody. She doesn't have any documentation because ICE takes that and usually it sounds like does not return it. Um, And then the process would start again. And where would she be? She doesn't possess picture ID. So a chain of volunteers organized to drive to New York to help her, to help her drive to New York, set up shelter, and help her begin the long process of completing the necessary and complex legal requirements to regain custody of her children. That is how she came to be, sitting on my couch, telling me her trauma, telling me, I have suffered a trauma, but I just want to be reunited with my children again so we can move on such little time to talk to me, so she chooses the part of her journey that is the closest to her heart, related to her separation from her children. She just wants her children back to live with them safely. And she is at the bottom of a power structure in a society that values money, utility, beauty, intelligence, education, racial preference. On her own, the odds are deeply stacked against her. What do you say to people who have experienced deep trauma, deep recent wounds, to the pieces of the story and the suffering that I didn't include here because it would take too long? There isn't anything I can say. My children are sleeping safely in the next room. So I sit with her in silence. And as she cries and she tries not to cry, I am also crying and trying not to cry. Hagar. Hagar's name name means immigrant or migrant. Her son, Ishmael, is named God Hears. For those of you unfamiliar, I'll give you a brief synopsis of the story of Hagar in Genesis. Abraham, who is regarded as a father of faith by Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, is married to Sarah during ancient times. Abraham receives a promise from God that he will have many descendants, extremely important during a time in which your family is your source of support and protection. The text states that Sarah is barren, she can't have children, which is effectively a catastrophe for her in a patriarchal ancient society that highly values sons to continue on with the family line. Abraham receives a promise from God that he will have many descendants, like the grains of sand on the beach or the stars in the sky. However, over time this promise seems more and more fantastical as the couple continues to age with no descendants. Sarah decides to take matters into her own hands and gives her slave Hagar to Abraham to sleep with. And Hagar becomes pregnant with a son. Of course, when Sarah herself eventually becomes pregnant with a son, this brings to surface the jealousy and the competition for her own son to be the rightful heir of Abraham's wealth, power, and protection. The hope for financial and physical security and protection represented here in the ancient story through a male heir, isn't that different from our hopes today? In our modern society, we substitute well-paying jobs, financial security, cars, and housing accommodations as assurances that life, are going, life is going to go well for us. Perhaps like Sarah, it's easy to see groups of people like Yeni who might take our jobs, displace us, or otherwise jeopardize our well-being, And it makes us complacent when power systems that we have treat them like threats, rather than human beings made in the image of God. As the story of Hagar continues, Hagar calls out on God to two separate occasions. One, after she flees into the desert through mistreatment. Sarah mistreats Hagar, and she flees into the desert. A second, when she's finally cast out. Both times, she's facing certain death, and she receives assistance from God, along with promises of reassurance and promises of a hopeful future for her and for the son that she deeply, deeply loves. As biblical commentators note, the idea of God answering personally to a low-status slave woman was a revolutionary thought in a time when even wealthy women were considered second-class citizens, and the attention of a deity needed to be attracted through sacrifices or the attention of a specially trained priest. Hagar summarizes her experience with God, calling God, You are the God who sees, and you have seen me. It is a plot twist in the ancient story where God directs attention and assistance specifically to the person with the least power and the least value in society. I don't expect that God operates any differently today. As the story came to mind, I told a brief version of it to Yeni. She's a Christian, and she probably knows it. In this moment, I believe that seeing... Like, the God who sees me doesn't mean just visual. The, it means, like, the kind of seeing with a capital S. The kind that means to take into account, to know, to take note of. It's knowing that you aren't alone in your suffering. That while other people are passing over you, thinking that you're not high enough on the power pyramid to really matter, a powerful force in the universe turns that pyramid over, so that the injustice and the voices of the oppressed are seen and heard by God. Many of us can relate to Hagar's story in some way. Maybe you've experienced being on the bottom of the power pyramid for economic, social, racial, or any countless number of reasons that our society devalues people. Maybe you carefully conceal portions of your identity, such as who you love or what gender you identify with, so as not to be cast out and rejected from your family, culture, or community. I've often thought of the story of Hagar when I evaluate my own support network and worry that it's lacking. If something bad happened to me, my birth family of origin wouldn't show up, wouldn't show up for me and I'd be dependent on the kindness of others, just like Yenny. Some of us are closer to the top of the power structure, and even though it can be uncomfortable to admit it, the closer you are to the top, the more you fear falling lower. Like Sarah, it can be tempting to see resources like a pie that gets cut up, so more for you means less for somebody else, or vice versa. By participating in Yeni's journey, and being up close with somebody somebody who handles suffering with far more maturity and grace than I, it makes my current unemployment situation seem small in comparison. I'm humbled and there is little room for my own self-pity, and I recognize how many resources and privileges I actually have at my disposal. So many people want to know, what happened to Yanni? What's the happy ending? At this point, Her story is still unfolding. She has seen her children and spent time with them, but she doesn't have them yet in her care because as I understand it, they have to deem her a fit parent through the child welfare process. She needs continued help of her lawyer and the volunteer community in New York City to help her move through the red tape to regain legal custody of her own children. This may involve at least one court appearance in New York City. Additionally, I don't know the status of her asylum case. It's possible that she may need to return to Arizona to continue her own legal case from that point. I don't know. As you can see, it's pretty complicated and virtually impossible for her to accomplish these steps without significant help from caring people, donating their time, money, and resources to support her efforts. Fortunately, there are people willing to help, but it takes an intensive financial and time investment from people from a variety of backgrounds. For example, my neighbors, Jessica, who are pretty committed atheists, um, Jessica's a frequent organizer and activist for various causes in kind of the Washtenaw County area, and she set up a part of the organization for Yenny's trip in this area. Um, Rabbi Josh was the one who showed up at my house at 6 a.m. the next morning to be Yenny's driver from Michigan to Pennsylvania on her next leg of her journey. I would say if you feel at all compelled to be involved in these kinds of issues, don't underestimate your value, even if it is a small time or money donation. Every little bit Made a difference to Yenny, and it can make a difference to another person in a similar situation as well. And I feel like we can really honor the God who sees us, who knows us deeply, by caring and seeing and lifting up people who are the most vulnerable in our society. Thank you for your time and attention.
0: I, I uh, read um, Christie's story uh, the last couple of days, and so I mentioned it, you know, in conversation, everyone all over the country is talking about this, and I think I was talking to my older sister in New York City, and uh, she was like, oh, can you send me that? Can you send me the write-up of that story? So I emailed that to her, and my I was ta- telling my daughter Grace about it. Lives in San Francisco. She's like, Oh, I want that story. So I mailed, emailed it to her. So we're going to be posting the write-up of uh, Christie's uh, story there on uh, a2blue.org. It, usually those are up within a day or two. Um, so you can just, uh, visit, uh, you know, go to a2blue.org, go to the sermons. And if there's someone you think you would lo- like to hear the story, just, you know, uh, download it and send it to them. And I think it's important for us to be like sharing these stories as they become very personal for us as these things are going on. Um, so I, I wanted to um, just lead a, uh, quiet reflection time in response to uh what christie shared with us and you know i think the thing that hit me as she was uh speaking was just like a critical move like she's just living her life doing her thing but she had a neighbor who was an activist and was talking with the neighbor and this opportunity came up to be part of a much bigger process of lending some actual help to an actual person and because her heart was inclined in that direction already she said yeah sure i'll do it of course i'll i'll do it and then had this very significant encounter and that's that's i think the thing that god is like looking for from all of us is just the, the lean of our heart so that we have eyes to see opportunities to you know, like see invisible people and to make sure they're not invisible because we see them. I just think about, gosh, the Yenny, um having uh, Christy there just recounting that story of Hagar and uh, the, this woman, powerless woman, who was seen by God. And, and surely she must have felt seen by God just in the telling of that story and that encounter with uh, Christy. So... Um, for our reflection time, just, I'm gonna, I'll tell you what I'm going to suggest so that you can decide to participate or not in the reflection time. Um, for the first uh, section, maybe 45 seconds or so, I'll just invite you to kind of reflect on what you've heard, the story of Yenny and Hagar, how those two go together, and then maybe um, consider a situation in your own life. Where you can identify with the powerlessness of this woman coming from Guatemala, or uh, with Yeni, and you know your circumstances aren't not going to be the same or that kind of extreme, but we all face different things in our lives where, like, we want to be in charge, but we're not in charge of what happens, and we feel vulnerable and we feel powerless. I think of like all the um, parents in the church, you know, going through. Maybe, maybe you have uh, teenage kids or adult kids who are, are are addicted, and you're going through that whole, you know, process of how do you help? And you really can't help it unless they want to help themselves, and you feel so powerless in that. Or if, you know, you have a loved one in your family who is suffering in some significant way, and there's really nothing you can do to. And that suffering, that's that's an experience of vulnerability and powerlessness. So during that first minute, just reflect on the story as you've heard it, take it in, and then see how you can identify with that position of being either powerless or maybe invisible like Hagar or um, vulnerable in your own life. And then for the second um, phase, and I'll just give you a verbal prompting about this, maybe another minute, just imagine God as Hagar has now revealed God to us as the God who sees me. In the Hebrew, it's El Roy, and it literally means the God who sees me. So this powerful, powerless woman was able to reveal God to all of us in a new way as El Roy, as the God who sees me in that kind of a context of our powerlessness. And just maybe during that period, just repeat that name of God and take it in for yourself, the God who sees me, uh, where I feel powerless or vulnerable, the God who sees me. You might just repeat that over uh, for the minute. And then for the third um, little phase, a minute or half minute, um, i would just invite you to make a prayer. And the prayer would be, Lord, help me to notice someone who's invisible this week. Like, if there's a yenni in my life, if there's some, might even be in my family, um, notice the suffering of another person and be present to them for that. Um, uh, Give that away to another person. Pray that prayer, okay? So if you're ready, just take a minute and take a relaxing breath. Get comfortable in your chair. Let your mind just return to the story that Christy told us about Yenny and Hagar, and let it remind you of a situation in your own life where you feel either vulnerable or invisible or mistreated by people who should know better or powerless. And now for just the next minute, um, use the name that Hagar um, revealed to us about who God is, the God who sees me. And I just want to repeat that name over and over for the next minute. The God who sees me. And then for this next 30 seconds or so, just offer this prayer. Lord, help me to notice an invisible person this week. Lord, help me to notice an invisible person this week. Amen.